I am going to ask you guys to turn to the book of Colossians. We have been going through the book of Colossians in the last few weeks, and we have arrived at Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 through 23. So if you guys would stand with me as we give attention to the reading of God's word. Colossians 2, 16 through 23. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions, puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments grows with a growth that is from God. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Our Father in heaven, we come to you this morning, and I simply pray for humble hearts, uh, minds that are ready to receive your teaching. I pray that your spirit would be active here, informing us, instructing us, and teaching us how to live as free people in Christ. Of course, our hearts break on yet another weekend in the aftermath of another devastating, devastating, violent horrendous act in our nation. And so we pray for the people of Santa Fe, Texas, and simply pray that you comfort them, that you bring them peace in the midst of frustration, give them hope in the face of darkness. We pray that you put your arm around them, and we'd simply pray that something would happen to end this sort of senseless violence in our nation. We do want to pray also for Aaron and Daniel as they preach to other churches this morning. We simply ask that Redemption Church in Loveland and High Plains Harvest out in Alt, that these other churches who love the gospel, who love your word, who love your son, would be benefited by these men as they bring your word. And may we ourselves be benefited by the preaching of your word and by the power of your spirit. We welcome you here, God, and ask for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can have a seat. You know, I used to think of myself as a, a pretty experienced traveler, you know, like a, a navigator, uh, an explorer, a modern-day Magellan, if you will. I'm not. <laughs> I know that I'm not because I got lost trying to find my way from Fort Collins to, wait for it, Rapid City, North Dakota. South Dakota. That might be one of the reasons. <laughs> uh, we, who really needs two Dakotas anyway? Uh, a while back, I had a friend up there who was going through a bit of a rough patch, uh, and another friend and I had decided to visit this guy, make a long weekend out of it, and I left early on a Friday morning, and instead of planning out my route, looking at a map, I figured, you know, how hard can it be? You just drive north for a really long time, hang a right, and then you're there. So so instead of consulting a map or wasting precious data and battery life on my phone, I figured I'd just hop on I-25 and use my keen sense of direction, uh, search for helpful landmarks along the way, and just wait for the white and green signs to tell me how how far away I was from Rapid City. Now, I need to pause the story there for a second to let you guys know that I grew up on the front range of Colorado, which means that the mountains have always been to my west, which which means that whenever I see mountains anywhere else in the world, I always assume that's where west is. There's a handful of you that understand this struggle. That's good to know. So so when I'm driving north, I assume the mountains are going to be on my left side. Um, Funny thing about the Rocky Mountains, once you get up into Wyoming, they stop doing 
what mountains are supposed to do. And they sort of start to curve this way. And I-25 North curves right along with them. So as I'm driving, you know, Magellan here behind the wheel, I start to get concerned about the fact that I haven't seen any signs for Rapid City yet. So, so I cave. I'm like, all right, well, pull out my trusty iPhone 4, pull up my Google Maps, and, you know, type in Rapid City. Um, and the first thing that that bratty little voice tells me is, at the nearest exit, turn around and drive back 50 miles. <laughs> you got to be kidding me. <laughs> you see, the wind <laughs> was let out of this little Magellan sail. You know, I, I eventually made it to Rapid City incredibly late with almost no battery life left because I just left that sucker on for the rest of the time. Um, but the mistake I made was that I had made certain presumably logical assumptions about the direction that I was heading in. Because the landscape looked more or less what I assumed it was supposed to look like. Because it felt like I was on the right track. But because I didn't consult any external reference, after a long period of time, my trajectory was all off. So what we see in our text today is that faulty assumptions about Christianity are not only unhelpful, but actually set you on a trajectory that will lead you away from an encounter with the true Jesus. Or to put it more simply, false beliefs about Christianity will keep you away from Christ. And this is why the Apostle Paul writes this little letter to the church in Colossae. Paul writes from prison to a church that he's never met. He's been encouraged by their faith, by the love that they have for one another, by the love that they have for the Lord Jesus. But there are complications and controversy in Colossae. In God's wisdom, based on on what we have in here, we're not exactly sure what all the features of this controversy are. What we do know is that it gives Paul an occasion to write to us about the glories of Jesus in absolutely stunning detail. In this letter, Jesus is described to us as the image of the invisible God, the ruler over all creation. He is the one by whom all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. In him, all things hold together. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead. He is the head of the church. In him, God hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in him, Paul tells us, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Also, Paul tells us who we are now in relationship to this God. We learn that in Jesus, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily, but we also learn that we have been filled in him. Filled. That is to say, nothing lacking. No need for anything to be added to what Jesus has done for us. This is really hard for us to understand, okay? It's it's exactly why there's controversy in Colossae. You know, you can almost imagine the type of false teaching happening in this church. You know, oh, oh, so you're, you're a Christian now, huh? Do you, um, do you feel fulfilled? Well, if, if you want to become wise in your Christianity, if you want to have true spiritual knowledge, if you want to be full, then here's what you need to do. And what these false teachers prescribe, what they add to Christ, can be summarized with three big words, so you guys will feel like you got your money's worth today. Legalism, mysticism, and asceticism. You know, if those words don't mean anything to you right now, don't worry, they, they will eventually. Um, these are three things that appeal to the religious assumptions of, that people always, always, always make about God. But the question is, will these assumptions get us to where we need to go, or will they land us in the middle of Wyoming? Which, to be honest, is not an altogether bad analogy for hell. <laughs> I was going to apologize, but apparently I don't need to. <laughs> Paul confronts these three errors with three commands. And they're not the type of commands that you would assume. Regarding legalism, he commands us, 
let no one judge you. Regarding mysticism, he commands us, let no one disqualify you. And regarding asceticism, he commands us, do not submit. So that's how we'll look at it. That's how we're breaking it down today. So if you guys have your Bibles, turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, and we'll reread verses 16 and 17. Therefore, okay, I got to stop there already. (laughs) Why is he saying therefore? What's the therefore, therefore? Okay, he's saying this, he's saying therefore, because he just got done telling us that we've been forgiven in Christ, that we've been redeemed in Christ, that we've been fulfilled in Christ. Therefore, let no one pass a judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things that are to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So what is legalism? It's something we kind of talk about a lot here. Legalism is the, is the belief that through our external performance, we can gain favor with God. It's the belief that through our external performance, we can gain favor with God, which is literally what everybody, every religion, every human heart believes God wants. Now, in the direct context here, we learn right away that the controversy in Colossae has a distinctly Jewish flavor to it, which is to say it tastes nothing like bacon. (laughs) I'll let that one sink in. (laughs) He starts by telling us not to let everyone, not to let anyone judge us because of what we eat or drink or whether or not we observe certain religious festivals. Paul con- Paul's concern here is that these things are shadows. Here's what he means. The kosher diet of the Jewish people and their religious festivals basically pointed to the same reality. When you keep a kosher diet, you're constantly reminded of the difference between clean and unclean, the difference between holy and sinful, the difference between accepted and rejected. I'm sorry you guys keep getting all the negative ones over here. (laughs) A diet which requires you to separate clean foods from unclean and say, you know, not eating pork or camels or rock badgers for some reason. (laughs) Must have been a problem, I don't know. This diet is a reminder that God is holy and we are separated from him. It's similar with the religious days of of observance that Paul mentions here. You know, we'll have to talk about the Sabbath some other time um, in, in greater detail, but it seems like what Paul is referring to here are the ritualistic sacrifices that had to be made on each of these days. You can read about all of these in Leviticus 23, which I'm sure you're just chomping at the bit to do. Um, By having them slaughter an animal in every single one of these festivals, every new moon, every Sabbath, it's a reminder that they didn't earn their lives, but that were it not for God's mercy, they would be dead like that animal. It's a violent reminder of how seriously God takes sin. But in Christ, that's all coming undone. In Christ, the great reversal is taking place. Through what Christ did on the cross, the unclean are made clean. The sinful are made holy. The ones who were separated are brought back in. This is why Paul tells them these are a shadow of the things that are to come. But the substance, the body, the reality belongs to Christ. Why, Paul asks, are you so eager to go back to a system that was designed to foreshadow the full richness of what you already have in Jesus. So here's a stupid illustration. Um, At my work, I have a number of pictures of my wife and daughter sitting in my cubicle. I have them there to remind me of what I have waiting for me when I get home. I have them there to remind me of why I'm at work in the first place. What if I spent the last hour of every single one of my work days staring at those pictures and saying to myself, oh, I just, I can't wait to get home and see my girls. You know, if a a coworker came by and saw me doing that day after day after day, it would be reasonable for them to come up and ask me, like, dude, like, (laughs) instead of staring at these pictures and talking to them, why don't you just go home? You freak. (laughs) Now, 
if I replied to my coworker, well, well I, I just, uh, I, I don't know, I just have to. You know, they would assume that there's something wrong with me. But if I were to tell them, well, um, actually, my wife told me that I have to do this before I get home every day, they would assume that there's something wrong with her. And that's sort of the point here. Legalistic people not only evaluate their own spiritual worth on the basis of their performance, but they judge other people on the basis of that same criteria. They add their own rules to God's word, like God, you know, great job with the Bible, excellent first draft. You missed a few things. I've got some, I got some pointers here and there to help you out. You know, they, they place their own restrictions on other people's backs. And that's basically what's going on with the false teachers. The fullness of Christ has arrived, so why are you letting these folks come in and judge you regarding these practices? And it's kind of funny, though, how we as modern people think that we're somehow past this, that we've somehow evolved beyond it, as if the marketing at Whole Foods wasn't based at least in part on our own judgmentalism about food. Listen, we we live in the age of non-GMO, ethically sourced, hormone-free kale, You mean to tell me that we're not judgmental about the way people eat. And it works on both sides, okay? So as if there aren't people who shop at Whole Foods and look down their nose at people who eat white bread. And as if you aren't the sort of person who looks at someone who goes to Whole Foods to buy free-range coconut water and don't judge them. (laughs) And it's it's not just food, you can be legalistic about anything. Like, I was listening to the radio program This American Life a few weeks back, and there's a story they had about this gal who's like a, a YouTube personality who has like a relationships and sex channel on YouTube. She published an episode on her YouTube channel called Why I'm a Feminist. And the internet, being the dark hellhole that it is, you know, it provoked all these alt right, misogynistic type dudes to start attacking her because of this. What's interesting though, is as this story progresses, you learn that her main conflict wasn't with these alt-right trolls, but it was with her own liberal feminist allies. You know, apparently in one of, uh, one of her episodes, she provoked the anger of her peers by referring to male and female reproductive organs. And of course, there are people on that side of the political spectrum who, would, who said, essentially, like, how, how dare you call them male and female reproductive organs. You know, as if every biological textbook that's been written in the last hundred years meant nothing. And so as I'm listening to this, my honest reaction was, turns out you don't need to be a Christian in order to be a religious nut job. Now, I'm guessing that I've offended roughly 2 to 3% of you in here, and the rest of you are actually feeling pretty smug right now. So you can knock that off right now, because when it comes to legalism, Christians are the worst. What what legalists, and for that matter, what most Christians fail to do is distinguish between a principle and a method. You know, as Christians, we delight in the principles of God. How we apply those principles, the method of application, will look different from person to person. For example, the biblical principle for Christians is to walk in purity. Now, for some of you, where pornography is a really major temptation in your life, that might mean getting rid of your iPhone in exchange for a flip phone. This becomes problematic, however, if everyone starts knowing the crossing as that flip phone church. It might mean that we've taken a method and turned it into a law. And what are some other non-biblical laws out there that Christians have made? You know, how about a, what's the right Bible translation? You know, some, some churches will say there's only one right Bible translation. You know, if the King James was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. <laughs> I like one pastor's approach to this. He said that Bible translations are like ice cream flavors. Most of them are really good. A few of them make me sick to my stomach. The biblical principle is it, for us here is in chapter, the very next chapter, Colossians 3, verse 16, where it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. What does that mean for your translation? What does it mean for your personal time in the Word? What does it mean for your quiet times? What does it mean for your memorization of Scripture? All of those things are flexible. What's inflexible is getting the Word of Christ in you and experiencing its richness. Education. Do you homeschool? Do you private school? Or do you just 
take them to the public schools, you know, let the whore of Babylon teach them. <laughs> I didn't know if that joke would work. <laughs> if you're a public school teacher, by the way, that's not a rip on you. That's a rip on Christians. So, um, Here's the crossing's official position on educating your children. You should do it. Okay? <laughs> the biblical principle is that parents are actively involved in the education of their children. What that looks like can vary from child to child, year to year, family to family, situation to situation. Holidays, you know? It's interesting that the command Paul gives us here is not, don't you dare ever celebrate these holy days, but rather, let no one judge you regarding these things. You know, cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses don't let you celebrate any holidays, not even, not even birthdays. Puritans refuse to celebrate Christmas, partially as a protest against the Catholic Church, but also because, you know, it's not in the Bible anywhere. And there's even people still today who will point to the fact that a lot of Christian uh, holidays have pagan roots. I'm like, that makes sense. A lot of Christians used to be pagans. Like, <laughs> they got converted why can't their holidays be? You know, I don't see you rushing to kick them out of the church. So here's the principle. Romans 14, verse 6. The one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Alcohol. The biblical principle is do not get drunk, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is water, by the way. <laughs> that's, a, that's Ephesians 5.18. Some Christians will say that we're not supposed to drink any alcohol at all. If you point out that Jesus drank wine, they'll point out to you and be like, oh, no, 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 that wasn't, that wasn't wine, that was, uh, that was grape juice. Which is interesting because the legalists of Jesus' day accused him of being a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So, pretty good grape juice, I guess. The biblical principle is practicing moderation. Are you the type of person who sits down for a drink and nine beers later you're getting in a fight with your neighbor's dog? Again. Maybe it's time you take inventory of your own spiritual life. The other principle is drinking, the other principle regarding drinking is brotherly love. Suppose you come to our next man school, which, by the way, is going to be at a pub, and you sit down and see your friend there, you know, a little roughed up from the tussle with the dog. Instead of tempting him, how about you sit down next to him, order two sodas, a basket of fries, and say, hey, you know what, it's on me tonight. Same with the brother who grew up in a more strict religious background. His conscience might not be able to handle Fort Collins' beer culture. So sit with him, order an iced tea, and talk to him or her about Jesus. And I'm taking probably a little bit too much time here, so let me address just one more thing. And I think this is particularly relevant to the crossing. Are you judgmental toward people who are judgmental? Are you a legalist about not being a legalist? You know, I think we enjoy a lot of freedoms here at the crossing, and rightly so. I'm increasingly convinced that the normal way for the Christian life is to fight, laugh, and feast all to the glory of God. However, in obeying the biblical principle to live as free men and women, have we made it so that we're not free to set our own boundaries? Are there some of you in here who could do with a little less alcohol, a little healthier diet, a little less time on Netflix, a more structured time in your Bible and in prayer. You know, in trying to obey the command to be free, have some of us put laws in place that keep us from growing in freedom? Remember the principle here. The servant of the Lord is the most free person in the world. So what's wrong with all these types of rules? You know, we're, we're talking about trajectories here. How do we stay out of Wyoming? What's interesting about the trajectory of a legalist is it's not all that different from the trajectory of a rule breaker. Think about it like this, just one example. Two people struggle with a sense of being out of control of things in their lives. They have no control at all, it feels like. One of them deals with this stress by overeating. 
The other says, well, I'm not in control of anything else, but I can at least control what I put into my body. So they're extreme, they become extreme dieters, maybe uh, extreme exercisers, perhaps even anorexic. And so the person who controls their diet looks down at the person who's overweight. And the person who overeats sees the skinny person and says, well, look at you, you skinny such and such. The solutions they found are nearly identical in the sense that they are efforts at self-salvation. Instead of trusting God's sovereignty in their lives, they trust in food, whether a lot of it or almost none of it. Can you see how the same thing works with alcohol, with sex, with religion? Three things you probably didn't assume had so much in common. But here's what unites all of them. None of them can save you. It's foolish to try and judge each other regarding these things because apart from Christ, we're all engaged in our own futile attempts at self-salvation. Which Paul gets into even more detail when he addresses the next aspect of this false teaching. Read with me in verses 18 and 19. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So this is where we get into the era of mysticism. What is mysticism? You know, in our context, I would describe it as an unhealthy fascination, obsession, and insistence on spiritual experiences. An unhealthy fascination, obsession, and insistence on spiritual experiences. So let's, let's see how this manifested in Colossae. So the first thing we see here is that they're insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels. Now, the Greek word that's translated here as asceticism is actually probably more literally translated as false humility. Some of your Bibles, if you have the right version, will tell you it's false humility. <laughs> it's a joke. Um, some of your translations might, might just say that. What, it, what is the nature of this false humility, though? Well, I think you can imagine one of these guys saying like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't, I don't worship God. I'm far too humble for that. Instead, I, I worship and pray to an angel who's kind of like a go-between between, between uh, myself and God here. You know, this isn't all that different from how a lot of religious traditions have operated over the years. You know, they don't pray to God, but they pray to an angel or they pray to an ancestor or to a patron saint. And so on its face, it, it actually does kind of sound humble, doesn't it? But it's not humble, according to Paul, according to the Bible. It's ignorant. It's a fundamental denial of what Christ has done for us. Remember the glowing terms that Paul uses to describe Jesus in this book. The one in whom the fullness of God dwells and the one who fills us now. In another letter in 1 Timothy 2.5, Paul writes to his friend Timothy and says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. It's the same error they made when it comes to food and festivals. They've ignored the fact that Jesus has bridged the gap between God and men and women. So why would they believe something that on its face actually seems a little foolish? Well, it's because they had a religious experience that validated this to them. You know, there's, there's some debate here, but in addition to pushing these folks to keep kosher, a lot of commentators believe that these false teachers were insisting on some practices like extreme fasting. And so you can imagine a situation where these holy rollers come into the early church, uh, fast for days and days and days, and then work themselves up to the point where they have these detailed visions that Paul mentions in verse 18. It's honestly not all that different from a lot of mystical religions today. And this is a problem because people tend to put a lot of stock in their own personal experiences, don't they? Don't you? <laughs> now, this is a bit of an aside, but one of the things I can be pretty legalistic about is Christian TV. Like, I literally cannot watch it without sinning. I just get so upset every single time. Like, you have this pastor guy, and I'm, I'll probably offend someone with this, but I'm going for it anyway. You have this pastor guy and his wife whose makeup looks like she lost a paintball war, <laughs> they're, they're interviewing some random dude who had a near-death experience or has seen heaven or, I don't know, was, was touched by an angel. You know, I, I remember a few years ago just being 
shocked that they put this on TV. I, I stared in horror at this broadcast of a church service, if, if you can even call it that, where people are literally rolling on the ground laughing, flopping like fish, running up and down the aisles, screaming. And I'm just like, why are you showing other people this? <laughs> why would you do that? But here's the thing. like, I'm sure for all those people, it was a deeply meaningful experience. But I have to wonder, like, if experiences are so persuasive, how do you approach a situation like the one I had on CSU's campus a number of years ago? Let me explain it. Um, you know, it's been long enough that I don't remember all of the details, but I was talking to this guy about Jesus, and he starts talking to me, I kid you not, about Thor. Like, seriously, Thor. And this is, this is like before all the Marvel movies had come out, so this, is a, this was new to me. But I remember he was, you know, he, I guess... He, the story was basically he was looking into his own Celtic heritage and just started to believe some of the myths he was reading. And what, what sealed the deal for him one day is that he got into a big fight with his brother, and when he left the house and went outside, a raven, which I guess is Thor's favorite black bird, landed right beside him. And he just knew, because of that experience, that things were going to be okay between him and his brother. And guess what? Since that day, things had been good between him and his brother. So what do you say to that? If our experiences are authoritative, how in the world do you witness to the glory of Jesus in the face of something like that? Do you just share stories about what Jesus has done for you? You Do you you trust in the times you got goosebumps in a worship service? Or do you, the time you were praying and the wind all of a sudden switched directions? Now, I want to be careful here because what I'm not saying is that experiences are unimportant. So don't get that out of this. But how do we evaluate those experiences? Because most Christians tend to, well, most people, to be honest, tend to be pretty bad at this. Let me share one of the experiences of another apostle, Peter. Peter, who I think most of us in here know is one of Jesus' closest disciples, had this incredible experience with Jesus on a mountain. Matthew's Gospel describes it like this. Jesus took with him... Peter and James and John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And behold, a great bright cloud overshadowed them and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, They fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. When they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And Peter, years later, actually writes about this experience in 2 Peter chapter 1. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Now I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that was probably a more powerful spiritual experience than anyone in here has ever had. Unless you do LSD. Probably, probably still more powerful. What's more powerful to Peter than this religious experience? Well, he answers it in the next verse in 2 Peter 1.19. He says, And we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you would do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. If you are a Christian, you will have spiritual experiences. Like, that's a given, okay? But we must be careful to test these experiences in the light of Scripture. And why is that? Why is it so scary to have these mystical experiences untethered from God's Word? Well, what do you guys think is the trajectory of emphasizing this sort of fascination with spiritual experience? Well, in Colossae, it's arrogance. 
We see the results of obsessing over spiritual experiences in verse 19. It creates an arrogant, fleshly hierarchy that detaches us from Jesus. You know, this is something Christians still do today. There's a certain belief in a lot of churches out there that, you know, there are varsity teams with Jesus and there are junior varsity teams with Jesus. And unless you've had this certain spiritual experiences, sorry, you're still on JV. The reality is, though, is there are no teams with Jesus. Like, if you're in Jesus, you're on Jesus' team, period, end of sentence, nothing else. There is no varsity or JV. You know, there's some people who have literally, literally been shocked when I've told them that I've never heard God audibly say anything to me in my life. They look at me like, what? Like, God, God doesn't speak to you? And you're a pastor? To which I'd say, like, no, 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 no. Like, God, God does speak to me. He does it through his Bible, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's living and active. It's a firm foundation versus all the quicksand of this world. It's the sword of his spirit. It is theonoustos. It is God-breathed and profitable for teaching, training, and correcting in righteousness. Yeah, I hear God speak just fine through here. By the way, how are things going with that, uh, that girl you told me God said you should marry? Oh, she's engaged to someone else. Oh, interesting. I remember the first church I chose to go to, like the first one I went to of my own volition, emphasized the idea that if you really want to have a deep spiritual experience, you have to pray in tongues. There are others that say you have to receive a second blessing, whatever that means. Others will say that you have to have this intellectual experience, like do you subscribe to the same theology that I do? Because if not, you're obviously not a very spiritual person. This is all arrogance, maybe well-intended, but still arrogance. When Paul says, don't let anyone disqualify you, he's using a metaphor of a referee taking a prize away from an athlete. That's the hierarchy here. These guys are the judges, and if you don't do things their way, they'll just kick you out. And I say it's fleshly, too, because look at how Paul describes these guys with their sensuous minds. They may seem very spiritual, but they're actually after something far more earthly and malicious. They want power over people. You know, don't ever, ever, ever underestimate the desire of wanting to fit in. And it has been the cause for a lot of good people doing a lot of bad things. In a few verses, Paul is going to tell his readers to set their minds on the things that are above, where Christ is seated, not on the things of this earth. He says this because in spite of the fact that these guys seem to be super spiritual, they are in fact sensuous, earthly. They're power-hungry narcissists. They're not Christ-like. Jesus used his spiritual power to serve us. He wasn't puffed up. He was already the most exalted being in all of the universe. And yet he came down here in order to save us in our deepest needs. He is a true leader who lays down his life for his followers and doesn't just lord power over them. He uses all of his power and authority in order to benefit the weak and the needy, in order to benefit us, not disqualify us. It's totally upside down from the way every other power structure in this world exists. And indeed, Paul points this out in verse 19. These false teachers who've tried to be the head themselves, they've become detached from the head of the body. Jesus is the head. The church is the body. Do you know what happens to a body that's detached from its head? The answer is not much. <laughs> At least nothing good, you know. Through this type of teaching, they've become detached from the head. So let's finish out the final features of this false teaching, their insistence on asceticism. Read with me in verses 20 through 23. If with Christ you've died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching? These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. All right, so our last point, asceticism here. What is asceticism? It's basically the belief that in, um, let me start that over. It's the belief in spiritual addition through physical subtraction. Does that make sense to you guys? Yeah. 
spiritual addition through physical subtraction. What's the problem with being harsh to your body through something like extreme fasting or the harsh, whatever the harsh treatment is that he's referring to here? What's the problem with asceticism? Well, there's at least three things wrong with it. First off, the problem is that it belongs to an old order. That's what Paul's getting at here when he talks about this term elemental spirits. Ancient Greek philosophy talked about the elemental spirits as the physical realm, you know, earth, air, water, fire, and then, you know, the fifth essence, which was ether for some reason. However, the term, the term elemental spirits is actually kind of a tip of the hat to the fact that this physical world actually has some spiritual power in it. You know, think of the way that people used to worship the gods of water, or the gods of earth, or the gods of air, or, I mean, you can go to Sedona today and see a guy worshiping a rock, like, I'm channeling its energy. It's like, I'm sure you are. In a lot of ways, these physical things have spiritual power. You know, this, is, this is the part that asceticism actually gets right. I mean, just think of the power that alcohol has over the alcoholic, or the power that sex has over everybody. <laughs> one, of the, one of the main points of the book of Colossians is that when Christ came and died for the world, he took authority over the world. It belongs to him now. He bought it with his blood. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's why it starts, if you have died with Christ. If you're a Christian, you have died with Christ. You belong to him now. And guess what? The powers of the old order, the powers of, the, of your old way of life, no longer have authority over you. The mistake that asceticism makes is that they focused almost entirely on the old way of life. Paul mocks this kind of mindset when he summarizes their false teaching, saying, why do you submit to these regulations? Do not handle, do not touch, do not taste. Like, as if that will do anything. The second thing that's wrong with asceticism is that it's not from God. It says in verse 22 that these rules are just human precepts and teachings. We could go on, but it's basically the same problem as legalism. You know, ascetics insist that if you want to be a truly righteous, a truly spiritual person, you have to abstain from things the same way that they do. And it goes on to describe it in verse 23 as self-made religion. Religion is humanity's assumptions about God. Christianity is unique because it's revelation from God. And, you know, okay, I get it. I know that every single religion claims that, okay? But the existence of forgeries does not disprove the reality of a genuine article. I'll just leave that there. And the last thing that's wrong with this is that it has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So let's circle around that idea here for a second. Ascetics basically believe that if you can somehow starve your body, perhaps you can feed your spirit or create good vibes or put out positive energy. They see that the normal cravings of the body, whether it's for food, or for sleep, or for sex, or for fun, or for comfort, like all these types of cravings have gotten them in trouble before. Can anyone in here relate? Like, oh, food is snacking. What did you say? You know? What does asceticism look like? Well, there are actually secular ways that asceticism can manifest. You know, the, the modern secular ascetic promotes the religion of the gospel of reducing your carbon footprint. Reduce, reuse, recycle, now you're redeemed. Save the whales, save your soul. And for Earth's sake, stop having children. Now, I'm not saying that environmentalism is a bad thing. Again, obviously, we're stewards of this Earth, and we're going to have to give an account for the ways that we use these elemental spirits. But to deny the there are people out there who are environmental fundamentalists, who have their own creation, fall, redemption narrative, who have their own prophecies about the end times. To deny that this is religious devotion is absurd. So that's one way it manifests in our modern culture. But of course, I think we're all more familiar with the way it looks for some monk in a monastery somewhere. You know, a pastor whose blog I follow had a recent trip to a Russian Orthodox church. Um, and I'm just going to read what he described. It will hopefully be a little faster that way. He talks about uh, walking through the catacombs of this church this way. The paths through the caves were just over six feet tall and maybe a yard wide. There were little alcoves along the sides where dead bodies of monks were laid out in glass cases. Along the way were little holes in the walls about the size of a cantaloupe. 
These were the places where particularly pious monks had hid themselves or had had themselves bricked in, buried alive underground, because that was something that somebody at some point had decided would impress God. Food would be passed into them through their little hole, and their waste would be passed out. Eventually, after their years of vain glory in the dark, they would die in there, and nobody had to mess with a burial. They'd been buried for years. All of this for Jesus. The demands of Jesus are total, and apparently somebody thought that this obviously meant including the concept of total waste. There was icing on this particular little worship cake. When we were entering the caves, my companion, Boo Boo, real name, uh, my companion, Boo Boo, who was wearing shorts, was given an apron to tie around his waist in order to cover up his bare legs. I have never seen such a striking example of straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel in all my days. Down below, we had people praying through carcasses and dried out bones laying in the floor somewhere behind the walls. And up top, we had people policing bare knees and also making sure that all the women had head coverings before going down below to witness the remnants of what can only be described as spiritual insanity. Asceticism puts you on a trajectory that believes that you can somehow impress God by your devotion. It makes you feel guilty for the good things that you have. It says if you just feel bad enough about the ways that you have it easy, then somehow this will serve Jesus. You know, you better feel guilty about your privileges and not thankful. I mean, for goodness sake, if you were thankful, you might actually put them to good use. This is stupid. Paul says it has the appearance of wisdom, but the problem is that it's not a a spiritually mature way to think. So where does asceticism lead us? Paul tells us it's an error because it's focusing on things that are destined to perish with use. Paul is pointing here to one of Jesus' own own teachings. When the Pharisees of Jesus' day criticized him for eating food in a certain way, he responded like this, There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within, and they defile a person. This is why Paul tells them, do not submit to these things. They do nothing to stop the indulgence of the flesh. Now, this is, this is exactly the reason why we see so many allegedly Christian cults, for all of their devotion, end up devolving into these cesspools of sexual immorality. Or the reason why you hear about these supposedly really strict and religious sects, you know, that, that say like, oh, you better, better not do that, don't do that, don't do that, don't eat that, don't touch that, you better not drink that. And behind the scenes, the leadership in that church are abusing children. Here's the point. By focusing our attention on religious performance, which is legalism, or by focusing our attention on religious experiences, which is mysticism, or by focusing our attention on religious restrictions, which is asceticism, we don't actually do anything that engages our biggest problem, which is the nature of our hearts. The thing that the New Testament calls over and over again, our flesh. Our passage ends, these things are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. They do not transform the heart. So where do we go from here? Okay. Well, it's hard to say because this sermon was too long about 10 minutes ago. You know, so don't, don't put your legalistic 40-minute sermon on me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you wish. <laughs> so, so here's what we're going to do. Um, I'm going to suggest, not command, but suggest because I'm not a legalist, I'm going to suggest that you go back to the sermon I preached in January on Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Uh, In that sermon, I talked about how our union with Christ is the fundamental reality that causes change in us. It's the fundamental reality that changes our hearts. Think of it as an optional homework assignment. So we'll be skipping Colossians 3, verses 1 through 17 next week. 
because I spoke on it earlier this year. But we'll repost the audio on Facebook, we'll throw it in the email, maybe even post it on the blog so you all have the opportunity to do the right thing. <laughs> Sorry, legalism. Um, here's where I want to leave us today. I've attempted, at least, to use a lot more humor in this sermon than I typically do. And that's because when we're dealing with issues like legalism, mysticism, and asceticism, the reality is, is that we take ourselves way too seriously, and we don't take God nearly seriously enough. I honestly hope I offended all of you today. If I haven't, come talk to me afterwards, and I'll offend you to your face. The reality is, is that we don't have time to be dealing with this petty garbage. There's a whole world out there in desperate need of the life-transforming message of the gospel. There's a whole world full of destructive young men who are ready to shoot up their schools while we're in here arguing about Bible translations. There are kids across this nation who are starting to believe what their teachers have taught them, that they're nothing more than stardust and that their ancestors are fish. And so why in the world does any of this matter anyway? There are kids who've lost any sense of meaning and purpose and are struggling with a daily desire to commit suicide. There are men and women dying on our streets because of opioid addiction, a true counterfeit spiritual experience. There are 10 to 20 babies every single Thursday through Saturday being killed just a couple miles north of us. We don't have time to sit around here being so petty. So get off your duff and get after the mission. That's exactly the reason why Paul writes this letter. While the Colossians are sitting around arguing about the right way to eat food, the right way to drink, the right way to worship, their entire culture is falling off the rails, and they have the only message of hope. So here's where I'm going to leave you. Every religion in the world believes that you need God's grace and need God's mercy and, and all of that, and that's all well and good. Here's what makes Christianity different. Yes, you need God's grace. Yes, you need God's mercy. But his grace and his mercy are sufficient for you. You don't need to add anything to it. So here's the message we all need. God is holy, and our sins deserve far more wrath, punishment, and rejection than we could ever possibly fathom. However, God sent his son to die on a cross and bear the wrath and the rejection and the scorn that we all deserve. So now... You and I are more loved, forgiven, and accepted than we ever dare dream. The message is that Christ died in accordance with the scriptures. On the third day, he was raised in accordance with the scriptures and is seated now in the place of authority at the right hand of God, calling people to come to him, taking out their hearts of stone, giving them a new heart of flesh upon which he has written his law. That's the gospel, 200 proof, no additives needed. So let's receive that, let's believe that, and for God's sake, let's go proclaim that. Amen? I pray. Our Father in heaven, we humble ourselves before you right now and simply ask that you take everything that was helpful that I said and use it. Everything that was unhelpful throw it in the waste bin. I don't care. What I desire is that your name is glorified, that people come to know Jesus, come to know his reality, and have their lives transformed by him. And so we pray this all for Jesus' sake. Amen.